Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 27. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. How many of you are stargazers? Probably all of us are at least amateur stargazers. If you have fairly decent eyes, we are told that you can see about 5,000 stars on a clear night. But, of course, there are many, many more that we cannot see. In fact, in 1995, the Hubble Deep Field Study Space Probe concluded that there are billions of galaxies out there, and each galaxy on its own containing billions of stars. How many is that? Well, to really put it into perspective, here are how many stars are out there. Count up, if it were possible, all the grains of sand upon the earth, then multiply that number by 10. That, according to the astronomy experts, is how many stars are out there. And I, for one, just can't get over that. It boggles my mind. I'm going to go out on a limb and just say, I'll bet the shepherds were stargazers. Why would I say that? Well, they were often with the sheep at night out in the fields. The sheep are all tucked in for the night. And what's a shepherd to do? No television, no radio, no internet, no cell phones, not a book or magazine. He might have an instrument he would play a little bit through the night. He certainly wouldn't look at much on the ground. It was too dark. And so the celestial lights, the stars, got his attention. He probably got familiar with the different constellations, possibly had his very favorite stars picked out. I had you all scared for a minute, didn't I? I'm still working on my concerto, and one of these days I'll play the concerto. No doubt the shepherds were stargazers the very night of his birth. They were watching their sheep, and they were not too far away from where the baby was born there in Bethlehem. And as they were looking into that night sky, such as what you were just looking at a minute ago, which I think was probably a clear night, an angel appeared to them. They knew it was an angel because they'd never seen anything like this before, the scripture tells us. In fact, uh, a being with a glow around him uh, described the angel as the glory of the Lord. At first, these shepherds were terrified, and I think that's probably an understatement if you were to see a being like that in the sky. But very quickly, the angel comforted the shepherds and told them, I'm not here to scare you or terrify you. No, I'm a heavenly being sent to you from God. And I've got the most wonderful news you could ever imagine. Today in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great host of angels joined the one angel and 
And uh, they all had this special look and feel about them. They all uh, it seemed to have this look of reverence for God and this, this look of just joy, of joy and love and being able to lift God up and, and uh, show praise to him. In unison and in a, in a worshipful manner, they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom his favor rests. Then the angels disappeared. The shepherds, I would think, probably looked at each other and all with the same thought, what are we waiting for? Let's get into Bethlehem. We've got to see exactly what the angel has described to us. And so they did that. They went into Bethlehem. We don't know how long it took, how far out they were, but in a matter of time, they found Joseph and Mary and the baby lying in a manger just exactly as the angel had described it. We don't know how long they stayed there. I think they probably would have liked to have stayed there all night long. But these were responsible shepherds, and they had sheep out in the field, and they knew they had to get back to the sheep and, and got back. And, uh, but as they were on their way back, they had news to share with anybody they met up with, anybody they saw. There was no way they could keep this to themselves. And so everybody they met up with, they shared with them everything that they had seen. And the scripture says everyone who heard their story likewise were amazed at what had happened that night. One of the reasons the shepherds would have been amazed at all of this was, was as well as all of those from Bethlehem, would have been for this reason they would have been the last people of all of Israel to have expected to have heard the news. Don't you think? Shepherds, who were they? They were not very significant people. They did have a very important job, but it, it was something that anybody could be trained to do. Anybody could do it. And you didn't make a lot of wages as a shepherd. You really didn't smell very good. You were with sheep all the time. And uh, you seldom got in to take a bath, to change clothes. And, and uh, it was just not a very uh, significant role, uh, job, occupation in that world. So the shepherds must have been amazed, first of all, because for simply the fact God chose us to be the first to receive the news. Don't you find that to be kind of amazing yourself? We're the most insignificant people of all Israel, it seems like. And God told us first, we the forgotten ones of Israel. And then to think that he was born in Bethlehem, a very small town, known for nothing other than the sheep business. Nothing really significant of all that happens there. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, I can get the feeling like the shepherds did. The forgotten ones, the insignificant ones. God takes care of others. God seems to hear the prayer of others. God seems to have a really nice plan for so-and-so in their life. And God gives great stories and get great testimonies to others. But don't you feel like sometimes you, you would say, I'm almost the forgotten case. God, where am I in all of this? When you begin to think like this, though, your life also starts to take a different turn, doesn't it? It's harder to get up in the morning, isn't it, when you feel like you're forgotten or you're insignificant. 
You've got to push yourself to do things. You discover that your self-confidence begins to lag. Your self-esteem can begin to kind of take a nosedive. Your feelings about yourself begin to change. And uh, the feelings and, and so on begin to diminish that you really need in life to really feel like there's something to live for and hope. And then if we let all of this go on for too long, you know what happens? We really do begin to think hope is gone in life. How important is hope? If, if you know anything or if you've gone to Hobby Lobby or any, any Christian store and sometimes they'll sell these little plaques or signs to put on your wall, you know there's always faith, hope, and love. How important is hope? Well, the world automatically puts trials in our lives, doesn't it? Tests, tribulations, hard stuff. It's an automatic thing if you walk this earthly journey, and we're all walking it, obviously. But you can make it as long as you feel like there's hope in your life. So hope is kind of important. The dictionary defines hope like this. It's to desire with expectation of obtaining. Uh, desire accompanied by expectation. But hope in the Bible takes a little different turn. Biblically speaking, hope is this, the expectation that all God's promises to us and for us will soon be realized. It is trusting and waiting on God. That is hope when you look at it in the Bible, what it means. So let me ask you this morning a very important question that you need to think about. Ask yourself, do I have hope in my life? What do you think? Some of you are tired because if, as I look at you right now, I don't see a lot of hope. <laughs> but you'll wake up and you probably have hope in your life. But we all laugh a little bit, but there are periods in our life where we don't feel like a lot of hope is there, don't we? And it's a way of, it comes to our lives. How would you answer that question? But probably more importantly would be this question. Do I have a real hope in God and his promises for me? Is that alive in your life? Or has the Christian walk become kind of a drudgery, kind of a, 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 just a thing you walk through and you do from day to day? Or do you really feel and believe and know that hope is there? God's kind of hope. That is not a question that I ask you this morning to put you down if it's not there. It's not a question that I, I preach to you in a downward way to make you feel bad if it's not there, but I'm preaching to you this morning if, if hope is not there, if hope is lacking, I'm trying to push you up. I'm trying to be an encourager. I'm trying to do something and, and God's Spirit will come into your spirit and you'll come to the place you feel like hope really is alive. Because Jesus is alive. Isaiah wrote words to people who had apparently come to think of themselves as insignificant to God. His attention was turned towards people who were not feeling or experiencing a lot of hope in their lives at, at that moment. And God knew that. God can read minds and God knows who we are, where we are. He knows what's going on deep down inside our heart and our soul. And here are all the things that God knows about us. He knows our physical makeup. 
You know, it's interesting, you and I, if, if we were to go to all the specialists out there, the doctors out there, and we were to go through all the tests that there are available, you and I, all of us, would probably have a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper would be this list of all the things that are wrong with us physically. Some of you have sinus issues. Some of you have gland issues, sore throats. Some of you have arthritic things going on. Others of you have, have overcome cancer or uh, different things. But physically, those doctors could tell you, here's all the things about your body that's just not perfect. We would all have that list. God knows about that and the feelings that come with that. God knows about our broken dreams, those things that you and I often don't even want to share with anybody, the disappointments in life. But God knows. God knows about the hurts that others have caused to you, caused you. God knows about your failures, and he knows uh, everything you've tried and you've failed at and you're disappointed at yourself with. God knows about your sins, even the secret sins that nobody maybe would ever know about. God knows about your loneliness. God knows about the failed expectations you've had of others and what you wanted them to be in your life. God knows about your anger, your perceived injustices that might or might not be real. Everything that tears at your ability to hope, God knows. And when we lose hope, we automatically think, well, God has forgotten me. I'm an insignificant one. The two go hand in hand. You see, if we let that thinking go on too long that we're insignificant, then it begins to turn to despair. And the land of despair is not a very desirable place to be. But here's what Isaiah wrote. Actually, these are the words of, of God to a people who had turned their, their thoughts to feeling like God has forgotten us. We are insignificant. In verse 27, puts it this way. Why do you say, O Jacob... And complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. How does God respond? Well, he tells him, take a look at the sky. On a clear night, you'll see 5,000 stars. And then the, God says there's an untold number beyond all that. You and I kind of have an idea now how many there are. Probably more than that, actually. And God lets these Israelites know, I know every star. I've given every single star a name. How many stars? Count the sands on the earth. Multiply that by ten. That's how many stars are out there. God says, I know every one of them by name. God knows when every comet or every star makes a shift or a change and he knows it all. I think that's kind of just kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? But what, what does that have to do with you and me? We're not a star. Well, it has this to do with us. We each have a name, don't we? We each have a name that our parents gave us. We have names that maybe are nicknames other people have given to us. But I think God has a different name for each one of us. You have a name. But I think God has given you another name. And that name that God has given you is a name that, 
when God thinks of that name, he thinks of all those, every aspect of your life. And God has come up with a name and he says, that is who you are. And I know you by that name. And I know everything about you. And I know wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're dealing with, God says, I've given you a name that tells me all of that. I know your every part and your every little peculiarity. And most important of all, God says, and I love you. And I care for you. And I know about you. And I have hope for your life. I was listening to the radio station this last week one evening as I was driving somewhere. And on the radio was a talk show host. And people were calling in with Christmas stories and things that meant a lot to them. And one lady called in. And she said, years ago there was a point in life where I had just lost hope in everything. And she said, not only had I lost hope in everything, but my hopelessness turned to despair. And my despair turned to plans of suicide. And she said, I had a talk with God, and I said to him, God, I'm giving you seven days. In seven days, I'm waiting for you to show me a reason to live and a reason to go on. She said, I fully intended to take my life on the seventh day if God did not intervene in a big way and show me I ought to keep living. She said, day one came and I wanted to end my life. Day two came and I'm more than ever ready to end my life. All the way through day six. And she says, I was ready on day seven to end my life. Day seven came and she said a friend had called her and said, I'd like for you to go to church with me today. She thought, well, I'm supposed to end my life today, but it won't hurt anything. The last day of your life, go to church. She went to church that morning, and guess what? All the parts of the service took place. The preacher got up to preach, and guess what his sermon was on? Suicide. And in his sermon, it was a two-part sermon, he said, there are two reasons you should not choose the option of suicide. Here they are. Number one, you don't have the right to take away what God created. She thought about that, listened to that. And then he went on and he said, number two, this is it. God has a plan for your life. And the Spirit of God spoke to her, and she realized, I do have hope. What's interesting is that uh, God did get a hold of her life, and she didn't want to go against God's will. And, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God spoke to her. There is hope for her. And it was almost as if God spoke to her, and she was as if she said, you mean God really does have a plan for my life? then I can't end it. i got to find out what it is. And of course, she went on to testify on that radio program what God had done for her, and that was years ago in her life. You may not be suicidal this morning, although in a group this large, 
somebody probably has contemplated suicide. But if you're not suicidal, maybe you are one, though, that has felt like despair in your life or there's not a lot of hope in your life. Well, let me tell you something. With God, there is always hope. There's always hope. But you've got to realize that God's hope is different from the world's hope. What is the world's hope like? You know, the world offers a different kind of hope, and, and it's, it's not a real solid and lasting hope. You see, when the world offers a plan for hope, it might really get your feelings at first and excite you, and you want to do it, and you can't, get ex- you can't wait to get started in the way the world tells you to have hope. And whatever plan it is, here's what it will lead to, the world's plan for hope. As quickly as you got excited about it, sometimes as quickly you'll get unexcited about it because feelings are so fleeting. And then when the feelings are gone, you'll probably feel more hopeless than you ever did before when you do that the world's way. Sometimes, though, the world offers a plan for hope and you keep the cause going and you keep the plans going and you're real disciplined and and you might have intermittent periods of feeling excited and so on. But mostly the world's plan is a tough go of it. In the end, also, you ask yourself, what did it get me? What is going to happen in the life to come? I have all eternity ahead of me now. But here's how God's hope works. It may bring you feelings of excitement at first. That's not you know, uncommon. And so you're excited as you learn God's hope and His way. But, but most importantly, when you choose God's way, it's not choosing feelings. It is choosing a way. It is choosing a person. It is submitting to a spirit, to God's spirit. It is submitting to Christ. It is committing to a person and His will and His direction for your life. You're not choosing feelings or excitement. You're making a choice. But in making that choice, you soon discover you've found real hope. It doesn't go away. It keeps going. And when you come to the end of this earthly life, you will find that your desire for Christ also gives you real hope for eternity. I enjoy the Christmas season. It's amazing. I'm looking at all of you, everybody in red and black and green this morning, just all over. Some of you are in blue and green. That's okay. It's not even Christmas Sunday yet. so. But I enjoy Christmas, don't you? I love looking at Christmas lights. And uh, I've made a few calls lately to Wesley Hospital, and I go right up Oliver, and then I take a little detour over into College Hill, all those old homes and the lights. I just, I just love that. I love Christmas lights. I love Christmas music. I hope that you're enjoying our services through December, the extra special music and things that we're doing for you. I love um, programs. Tomorrow night we're going to one, I think, Central Christian Church and 
uh, went to one, you went to one our little granddaughter was in, and all that kind of stuff. I love programs, and shopping, well, yes, I like it. Sometimes I don't. Parties I like. Family get-togethers I like. Doing good things for others. Don't you enjoy that? You enjoy being Secret Santa? I'm going to say a little bit about that tonight as we have communion. Secret Santa, anonymous doing things for others. Isn't it a great time of the year? It's wonderful. But most of all, we focus, and it's been on the PowerPoint a number of times this morning, a little baby. And, of course, he's not a little baby anymore. He's the hope for the world. He's the hope for you and your life.